Join me for this momentous occasion. This is Josh Cohen. How are you, Mom? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm all right. It's lovely to have you back on the show. It's nice to be back. It's been a minute. Yes, it has. It's been quite some time. We're talking about All Japan Pro Wrestling, which I know is not your preferred wheelhouse. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I I have learned so much about different eras of wrestling and different promotions doing this show, and it all fits together somehow. <laughs> and this this one is, you know, we talk about forbidden doors in this particular time period, but this is literally Keiji Muto being a forbidden door. Um, mm. What we're talking about is a pay-per-view from the 1st, 13th of January, 2003. So in 2002, Keiji Muto was invented, invited to World Japan Pro Wrestling as a guest. And he'd started, which I think is perhaps the greatest faction in pro wrestling history, which was called... Badass Translate Trading, which was a faction that featured members of New Japan, members of Michinoku Pro, members of All Japan Pro Wrestling, members of mixed martial arts promotions. It was Translate Trading. Anyone could join that he thought was of was righteous and good enough to join, basically. That was the whole idea. And very clever. An, yeah, it's very clever. And there was an angle where people from All Japan wrestled in New Japan and people from New Japan wrestled in All Japan. And this all basically boiled down to the fact that after Giant Baba's death and the start of Noah, Motoko Baba had two Japanese wrestlers and five Gaijins and had to start again, <laughs> basically. So she did what she had to do. She brought in Junichiro Tenru, the great um, traitor of all Japan pro wrestling. And I'm sure Baba was spinning in his grave at the idea of Tenru being triple crown champion again. Um, she gives the book to Kawada, who's kind of on happy to do it for a while but doesn't really want the job permanently because you know it nearly killed Baba well it did in the end but that wasn't it wasn't the trust of the job he knows how hard it is and physically he's starting to get to the end of what he can do so she's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place and eventually um she hires Kiyeji Muto who leaves New Japan Pro Wrestling to be the ace and lead draw of all Japan Pro Wrestling in 2002 um, just all those badass fans like fans like trading, obviously, because a lot of people are just not going to be there anymore. <laughs> and um, brings a couple of people from New Japan over with him, including Satoshi Kojima, who we we will speak we will see on this card later, and sets about reorganizing the Greatest King's Road promotion into being a little bit more strong style, whilst trying not to alienate the audience that they've kept from the old days, which is a bit of an ask, really, wouldn't you think? Yeah. <laughs> so this show, this show is kind of a standard house show. It's at, where are we? We're in Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium. You can tell by the roof. New Japan yep. still go there. And the show, is, it's a sellout. So you can tell it's 4,800. The, the, the just on Budokan Hall. They were still doing Budokan Hall on a regular basis. 
they were making good money and they were they were becoming a bit more creatively free with uh, Muta in charge. So we're going to look at the whole show as we normally do and have a chat and go off in different directions. And the first match is fascinating because <laughs> it has Kazushi Miyamoto and Masanobu Fuchi. Miyamoto was the first uh, graduate of the Muta era of All Japan Pro Wrestling. And they're going up against Gran Naniwa and Daishi Ishikara. You know, you're probably not Taishi Ishikara is because he's, you know, Taichi from New Japan Pro Wrestling with the singing and the pants ripping off and the Mio Abe and the emperor of it all. And the Budget singing. got. <laughs> and this was prior to his turn to the dark side, which I can explore because you probably want some explaining to do there, Chelsea. I mean, I just... Yeah, I don't know. I I have very I'm very confused about that guy. <laughs> I don't really understand what he's still doing there. Okay, well I'll explain. We'll start with Miyamoto, who's interesting because Miyamoto ended up just being a freelance wrestler. He left All Japan a couple of years later, hmm. and from what I'm reading from the guys at Cage Match, who I'm looking at his profile in Cage Match, they say also he could have been the guy. You know, yeah. he, was, he was that good. He had all the tools. He had the size. He has the presence. And you look at his career, and he does a couple of shows. He does a couple of years in all Japan. Then he starts doing a load of indies, and then just leaves in 2007. And he's all over the place as a freelancer, just doing shows wherever. Um, but he seemed to have the whole package. And you do wonder, like, why didn't he go? I mean, there's nothing wrong with what he did. It's a perfectly good career path if that's what you've chosen to do. But it does seem like he was set for life, and it just didn't happen. Isn't he still wrestling now? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, where is he? Is he, he had an MMA debut in March of 2021. Holy cow. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's just, it's insane. Like, he's, uh, he's currently wrestling in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Evolution Lucha Libre, and he had a match in a couple of the Mexican Indies. So he's on excursion at the minute at the age of 43. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Fuji, who was his tag partner, is an age-old All Japan regular from the 1980s, um, mid, upper mid-carder who knew his role and in this match just to kind of make the numbers up and make everybody look good, really. Fuji was, you know, he was at this stage in his career, he wasn't going to go a ton further than the way he was going to go, but a kind of vital glue guy that All Japan needed. And then on the other side, we have Grand Naniwa, who Sorry, the late great Grand Naniwa is sadly no longer with us, but um, he we've talked about him many times before from his days in Michinoku Pro. And here his comedy heel hat has become a comedy face act, but it's still a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, that, that connection that Michinoku has where it's like the most obvious direct inspiration for Takara, um, you can see a little of that vibe yeah, if you definitely. pay attention to him. It's got that like, that sort of a... Uh, that sort of overt wackiness. <laughs> the unapologetic, like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense and you can't believe it as a realistic fight, no matter what those other guys are doing, but you're still going to enjoy it because it's great. Exactly. The Niwa was, of course, the great crab, because that's what the Niwa means. Um, his crab action has reduced somewhat as he lost weight as he got older and he got to slightly more serious wrestling. But I should explain Tai Chi. Why was this nice, clean-cut young man... <laughs> become this terror of, uh, as Kevin Kelly describes him, 
laissez-faire professional wrestling. <laughs> I mean, I know, like, I know fans turned against him because didn't he get caught cheating on his wife? And that's a no-no. You're not supposed to do that. Yes. Um, I think the fans have forgiven him for that over the period of time. But the, the in-between time, so basically he starts at this stage as a rookie, and he's a standard rookie, and he's a bit nondescript. And as all Japan develops, Kawada goes and takes over the dojo, and he isn't the best trainer in the world. He didn't produce any truly true greats. But one thing they did was televise the dojo, and Tai Chi saw this as an opportunity to kind of like grow his character. So he's, huh. him, him and Kawada kind of like hook up this angle where Tai Chi just becomes the most annoying student in the world. Oh my God, <laughs> he's the Miz. Yeah, and that's basically what he did. And like, he, he did all of these things just to wind up Kawada all the time. And they still keep it in kayfabe now. If there's like a press conference and stuff or Kawada's at and Tai Chi's at, then they'll kind of just like, Tai Chi will kind of, kind of be half apologetic and Kawada will just ignore him. Oh my god. I just I'm sorry. I just I just that that crystallized in my brain and I got goosebumps because he's the Japanese equivalent uh the Japanese wrestling equivalent of the Miz. Holy yeah. cow. Now does it all make sense? It it all makes sense and also I I sort of feel like I owe that guy an apology. Cuz I yeah. cuz I really actually like and respect the Miz more than a lot of wrestling fans do. Um yeah. I get it now. I get it. It tracks. I mean, and, and, and with the, the cheating on his wife thing, which is obviously horrible and stuff, but he did show... I mean, it's wrestling. Contrition. They all do yeah. it. And he, and he showed complete contrition and shaved his head as, in, in, as his traditional for Japanese uh, public yeah. figures do and did everything the right way that he possibly could. And as a result of that, has become massively popular amongst the Japanese fan base. Yeah, he showed complete contrition to the fans. Did yeah. he show complete contrition to her? We do not know. Obviously, that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah, because that's that's, that's the only thing that people should care about. Yeah, that's true. That's the thing. Um, and, you know, uh, tagging with Zack Sabre Jr. has made him, as well, as well as Zack Sabre Jr., they fed off each other, and they are the most popular tag team in Japan. Mm. And it is, it's interesting, like, the seeing the growth of Tai Chi from the guy who was absolutely hated him, because we both hated him. I don't like him as much as everybody else does, but I don't hate him anymore, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to see how his career developed. Of course, he left all Japan and joined New Japan about four years later, um, described as a bit of a rat leaving a sinking ship as the company dissolved downwards. But mm. it's a, he's a job, his profession. You've got to earn a living, haven't you? So, I haven't I, been watching enough of New Japan recently to see much of him tagging with Zack Sabre Jr., but I have to wonder how much of that is just Zack Sabre Jr.'s charisma, like, casting a, a glow he gets to step in. Which is, you know, which, to be fair, The Miz has done the same thing many a time in his career. The, the, so. they've, got, they've got such a good chemistry together as well, I would say, it suggests. Like, mm. the little movers they're doing, like, slam the guy near the ropes. They both stand on the rope and then stand on the guy's throat. And then that's the kind of great. The count referee counts to four, so they take the hands off the rope, but keep standing on his throat. <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> that does sound really cool, and I'm gonna look it up. Yeah, because they are they are baby faces now. Suzuki Gun are kind of baby faces now in hmm. comparison to everybody else. Like Bullet Club is still the big bad. United Empire yeah. are the badders, and mm -hmm. Suzuki Gun are no longer the evil that they once were. 
and Tai Chi and Zach are actually really popular. Like brilliantly last year at World Tag League, the final the the last group match was Dangerous Techers versus Bishimon, which is uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi. And they had a classic. They like literally went 20 minutes and Yoshihashi gets a pinfall on Tai Chi. And mm. they got up and they didn't weren't mad, they weren't angry. They Zach goes Zach goes and looks and says, You can do this. We can be at Wrestle Kingdom together for the tag team titles. So mm. go beat them on so go beat them on Wednesday and don't fuck it up. <laughs> it's huh. like, it like and I get I get shivers like that from my spine from just what he said in the rig and it was like and then they went to Wrestle Kingdom and tore the house down. And because and they went and when they lost the titles, they went and congratulated Goto and Yoshihashi because they're not really heels anymore, which is hmm. a, a shift of, of a great. Yeah, aspect. that is really interesting. But yeah, so there, there's an interesting thing, and the interesting thing for me is, and and in the next match as well, is how much of an influence Wally Yamaguchi has on this show. I watched another show as well, which was from the previous year, and Wally Yamaguchi was actually a referee on that show. Hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Wally Yamaguchi is the guy that managed Kai and Tai in WWF. So when you saw him trying to shop off Valley Venus's penis, it's that guy <laughs> from the Attitude Era. But what a involved... legacy. <laughs> That's the thing he's most famous for. But the actual like legacy of him is he used to be the chief photographer of baseball magazine. He used to run another wrestling magazine. Well, I can't remember what it's called, World Wrestling Magazine. Maybe in baseball magazine as well. He was a manager in Michinoku Pro. He helped train guys in Michinoku Pro. He was an agent for talent for Michinoku Pro, FMW, and for Wing. He became an agent for talent for all Japan Pro Wrestling. He refereed wow. for everybody. That match with Akira, Akira Okoto versus Shinobi uh, Kandori at Dream Slam mm-hmm. He was the one who bladed Akira Hokuto because he he was the only person she trusted to do the job right. Because she Holy didn't cow. trust herself to do it. That's he absolutely is one of the most important people in professional wrestling worldwide. Um, because he could go into a meeting with Vince McMahon and be taken completely seriously and go manage a crab monster in Michinoku Pro two weeks later, and it was the same guy. Wow. And he was the guy that organized that massive, insane show that me and John looked at a few years ago, based in the Tokyo Dome, where 14 different offices put one match each in the Tokyo Dome. So he's one of those guys kind of like, obviously, he's one of those guys kind of like Rocky Romero, where his true legacy is the stuff that you don't see on screen. Absolutely. Sadly, Wally's no longer with us either. He passed away a couple of years ago. But Mm. um, Dean Ambrose, who's a British wrestler, um, I was talking with him about Wally. And he, Dean Ambrose? Yeah, Dean Ambrose. Not Dean Ambrose. <laughs> I, oh, okay, it's... Oh, Dean. Is Dean... No. It's, oh, hang on. Got to look him up. Dean. British wrestler. I don't know who you're talking about, so I can't help you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, what did I say Dean Ambrose for? Are you talking about... Dean Ormark. Dean Ormark. That's it. Go right okay. here. Say a... a Zaya Brickside's husband, not Zaya Brickside's husband, um, her. She's, a, I think he trained her, um, trainer, yeah. Um, but she, he, he used to go to Japan for the small independent companies in the, in the early 2000s, and while he was still refereeing for them then, you know, because he loved wrestling. Wow. Even, even though his, like, 
the major part of his career was that it wasn't there anymore. But and his fingerprints are all over this. So you get to the next match, um, and you've got Super Dragon, as in Super Dragon, PWG Super Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> Tagging with Fuego up against Jimmy Yang, um, who was of course in WWE and in WCW, and Kaz Hayashi, who started off in Michinoku Pro. Um, and he was a he was one of the masked wrestlers there and went off to WCW along with Jimmy Wang and was a big part of WCW's junior heavyweight division and then went to WWE and goes back to World Japan and actually stayed in World Japan for quite some time. I think he was booking the junior heavyweight division. Um, and yeah, this is a fun match. What did you think of this one? Uh, this might be my favorite match on the card because it's crazy. Yeah. Um, there's like a Shiranui where you know, someone's running up another guy's chest. Like, <laughs> I had never seen that before. Um, th- yeah, this has, this has, this has that, like, a little tiny bit of that, like, screwball comedy vibe of, like, where did that weird flippy stuff come from? But it also has complete and utter seriousness. Yes, it's a fine line. Is it, you've got Ultimo Dragon on commentary here. And yeah. all of these guys start off with what, what you know, as part of Torimon, which was what becomes Dragon Gate. You know, mm. there's, there's, uh, on the previous show, what, there's entire Dragon Gate factions having matches as part of this because obviously Matoko Baba needed to fill seats and put people on shows. And this is kind of a bit of a, a follow through of that. And obviously, this has a major influence on what professional wrestling is about today. Super Dragon is still the chief booker for PWG. Right. Which, if may not be a big drawing promotion, is massively influential at everything that WWE, AEW, Ring of Honor, and Impact Wrestling has done for the last twenty years. I mean, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have NXT in any incarnation without PWG. No, you probably wouldn't have AEW either. I would think, really. Yeah. 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 Hundred um, percent. And Hase is still an influence on Japanese wrestling. He's the booker at Clate, which is um, Marcus's favorite promotion at the moment. Um, and, you know, Glate do shows, they're doing all sorts of incredible stuff, which is based on the principles of what this is, which is bring different styles together because styles makes fights, as you've often said so many times before. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was trained by Ultimo Dragon. And actually, did you, uh, I, I, looking at him in this match, just like, he is so uh, visually similar to Okada <laughs> that it kind of threw me <laughs> for a second there. Um, yeah. it's, it's a little nuts, man. I mean, I know that that's just a, that's just like a random aside, not a, not a factor in his legacy, but seriously, I was looking at him and also the way he moved and I was like, wow, I'm, I've got a little bit, he doesn't have Okada's smoothness, but that, uh, that supernatural athleticism and yeah, that sense of, uh, aerial awareness where he can drop kick a guy right under his chin and like hit the upper part of the chest without yeah. um without clocking them in the face you know no yeah his timing's impeccable oh my god so good so yeah. good i mean even now he looks younger now than he did 20 years ago i don't quite get it he's like i don't get how he's like two is a year older than me and like i i just it just looks like he's 30 you know and he's, yeah like, he's 49 <laughs> He's probably he's probably got like a like a dietitian and a physio <laughs> guy. You know, he's probably oh, he, doing all the athletic recovery stuff. 
oh yeah cryogenics and lives in the gym yeah yeah that's it but that's how it works you know because even japanese athletes are so far ahead with that stuff like yeah um I read this recently, last weekend was the Suzuka eight hour race, which is a motorcycle race, which funnily enough lasts for eight hours, tends to play the Suzuka motel race. It's part of the World Endurance Championship. And it's at Suzuka, the headquarters of Honda. So obviously Kawasaki, Suzuki, and Yamaha spend millions of dollars trying to win that race just to upstage Honda. Um, and Valentino Rossi and Colin Edwards used to go for Yamaha back in the, the 2000s and they went the first year because it was like this legendary race they wanted to win and then they went and then they did it and they hated it because they as soon as they got off the bike after a 45 minute stint they were they was dipped into a cryogenic bath for half an hour to give them full oh my God. recovery before they got stuck back on a bike to go racing for 45 minutes again and it got to the point where they were leading the race. They'd done it twice. They were leading the race by about a lap. Valentino mm-hmm. gets on the bike and no one sees which way he went. He just disappears into the middle distance. He's been told to drive right carefully and he, and he gets three laps in his 45 minute stint before he hands out to the bank driver to Colin. Before Colin gets his helmet on, he grabs him by the shoulders. For God's sake, win this race. It'll make us come back and do it again. <laughs> wow because <laughs> they hated it that much it was like their dream ride but they hated it that much because of having to be dipped in freezing cold water every 45 minutes but it works but it works it is true anywho uh, <laughs> that's why nfl players do it now yeah, yeah if you watch their practices afterwards they hop in those big metal tubs full of ice water and mm. giant pieces of ice and they sit there because <laughs> it works <laughs> Yeah, it does. That's it. Anywho, um, this, yeah, because this is kind of like, this is a bit like WCW junior heavyweights, and Jimmy Wang's still got his, like, cowboy hat from his WWE persona, which is a bit weird, because it's like, he is American, he's from California, so why would a Californian of Japanese descent try and pretend he was from Texas once he'd left Vince land is a bit strange, but there you go. Um, but it was like a first serious attempt at junior heavyweights wrestling that a all Japan had really tried very hard with because in previous years it had been oh, a bit. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, they had great junior heavyweights. Like, you know, um, uh, Onita was a junior heavyweight ace for them in the 80s, and Tiger Mask 2, Misawa, was a junior heavyweight, though he wasn't particularly serious about being a junior heavyweight champion but he didn't, obviously didn't start cooking until he became a heavyweight mm-hmm. um, and they had the they had Mondo Guerrero and Hector Guerrero and they had some great foreign names but they never they never really they were always in the shadow of New Japan's junior division because of course it had the Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask and Jushin Liger and Owen Hart <laughs> right, right. and El Samurai and literally the legendary junior heavyweights you don't think of all Japan. So this is them trying to do something seriously in the opposite direction. And I think it works. I think it does. And also, I don't know, it was kind of interesting to me to try to like frame this in the context of what was going on elsewhere in wrestling in 2003. Mm. Like I was kind of Googling around to see what was happening. And like, this was when a lot of the guys who were giant stars now for like AEW and who, um, and WWE were tearing it up in Ring of Honor for people who were considered like super, super hardcore indie Mm. wrestling fans who were sick of WWE. Um, I think that was kind of starting to take shape. Impact was still kind of a big deal in 2003. Mm. You know, like they were still considered a serious competitor. 
So they've only been going for a year or so at that point, but they've got a lot of momentum going. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's I mean like who was out there at that time? Like AJ Styles was out there at that time. Brian Danielson was out there at that time. Samoa Joe. Chris um, Yep. Like a lot of guys who were big players now were out there and they were having matches that, I don't know, like I was thinking in particular about like what the independent style was at that time, because it's obviously all the indies at that point were so, all the non-televised indies were so influenced by Japanese wrestling from Mm. the nineties. Yeah. Um, And what's interesting to me is like, this kind of feels halfway between the vibe of like, a ring of honor show like an early ring of honor show and like um oh now i'm struggling to put words to it i have the picture in my brain <laughs> it feels like halfway between the vibe of a ring of honor show and maybe like a lucha show like yeah, i would agree with that you know and there's a little bit of pancreas in there too because yeah. the guys when they take those big bumps they sell and the audience reactions to things are very like they very they're very emotionally invested in the storyline they believe it so like yeah. when someone gets put in a chokehold the audience reacts like oh my god that person is in a chokehold and this is very dramatic and i feel like Amer- north american wrestling had sort of already kind of lost a lot of that at that yeah. time i think as well you've got in japan you've got you've of all the shoot wrestling, like you said, with Pancras, but all mm-hmm. of the shoot wrestling we, we've seen, so you've got PWFG and UWF and UWF International, they are well aware of what submissions are supposed to be like and will react correctly for submissions that are well applied, which yeah. does them do to this day, and especially with MMA being popular as it is, like, no one puts on arm bars the way they used to in the 80s with, like, you know, uh, top wrist lock right. arm bars anymore. Everyone was a Yuji Kasami cross arm breaker because that's what an arm bar is now right you know you know it's not arm bars before were different to what arm bars are now um like an arm bar before is like becky lynch's finisher the disarm her yes was really popularized by david finley who obviously has a big influence on wwe's women wrestling generally but that that was a finley finisher in the 80s um that was an arm bar well that's not an arm bar now So, yes, you're right. It just, just You know what it is? It's lacking. I just, I'm sorry. I just, I, I just figured out how to articulate what it was I was trying to say. Okay. When I watch wrestling from that time period from North America, there is a constant level of meta that's happening in the minds yes. of the audience while mm. they're watching it. And yeah. that feeling has gotten worse over time, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. uh, 99% of wrestling Twitter is just talking about the, not 99%, but, like, 50% of wrestling Twitter is just talking about, like, the disparity between, like, the reaction of people being in the audience and their feelings about it versus, like, what it's like to watch it on television. And mm. I feel like the Japanese fans at this time period in this show and also other shows I've seen from this time, um, they're not doing that that level of meta, like they're not doing that work of like, oh, well, is this a match with a high work rate? Yeah. You know, should I believe that sunset flip? They're not doing that as far as I can tell. Like they're having very earnest, very open emotional reactions to what they're watching. And consequently, I think they're enjoying it more. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And I wonder how much of that has to do with, I, I know a little bit about what the internet 
wrestling fan culture was like in the English speaking world at this yeah. time. I don't know what it was like in Japan. I know I'm sure it existed. I'm sure it was different. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if the people who would buy tickets to something like this were going home and hopping on message boards to talk about. I, I don't think so. I think it was still kind of a very kayfabe fandom. It was more like a more like a sporting event, right? Yeah, like yeah. more like going to a baseball game or something like that. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it is. It is um, the next match is a good example of that. The next match is um, Ryuki Hijikati and Tommy Akahoma. Yes, that Tommy Akahoma uh, going up against Nabakuzi Hirai and Abdullah the Butcher. Now, Abdullah the Butcher in two thousand still got some of the spark about him, but he's not a serious sportsman. <laughs> But equally, people still believe in him, don't they? Hmm. Do you see what I mean? It's a sport. Yeah. Like, there's enough sports overlay for there for you to to get it, and and but they, they'll still receive Abdullah well because he's Abdullah. The fans haven't ruined it for themselves. No, that's it. They're not. You know, Abby in this particular time period is not the drawer he once was, isn't the worker he once was, but he knows to get how to get the best out of what he has. Mm -hmm. And he does, because he's a professional wrestler of 40 years experience or 30 years experience at this particular point, and he knows those fans love him. And he's a baby face now, so he can get away with whatever he wants to. <laughs> you know. It's true. Yeah. No, they wrestle particularly like much of a baby face in this match. <laughs> Dropping the elbow and laying on his opponent for a good 30 seconds after the finish. Um, but the fans loved him for it. He, um... Yeah, it's interesting seeing him at, at this uh, in this space because I'm used to seeing him in contexts where there's a lot more narrative pageantry around yeah. him. And there are people who seem to believe, if you read the things people say about him on Cage Match, that he needs that in order to be presented well. And this particular show doesn't have any of that, but the fans are still reacting to him yeah. that way. You it's know, using, it's, it's using it's clearly that, he doesn't need that. No, it's using that metadata in a different way. Yeah. You know, Abdullah's metadata is those matches with Hulk Hogan in 83 and those matches mm. with Van Hansen and, you know, facing Giant Babber and all of those things he did where the fans were terrified of him. And even going back to matches with Billy Robinson in the early 70s. And, but they grow affectionate for him because he was Baba's biggest opponent and Baba's not there anymore. And yeah. Abdullah misses Baba. You can tell he does, you know. Um, mm. so the fans grow to love him because he, they remind him of, a, of the prior incumbent right. of, of the beloved heart of All Japan Pro Wrestling, even though Baba hasn't been a vital player in All Japan Pro Wrestling for 15 years before he passed away, you know. Mm. He wasn't a main eventer really from the mid eighties onwards, but he, but he, it was the kind of thing Babel would have done. Babel, Babel loved professional wrestling. He knew he wasn't the draw. He knew he couldn't physically do the things he'd done when he was younger. So he moved himself down the card and put himself into some trio matches so he could go wrestle because he liked wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was did it. he throw? Did he ever throw a table in somebody's face though? No. <laughs> like no. Does in this match. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I, yeah, Abby will have to do what he wants to do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, Abby does Abby does his things the way he wants to do, and that's that's it, really. Yeah, I mean, it works. 
I mean, Homma was Homma had just come from BJW. He was a deathmatch wrestler before this, so it's kind of right up his alley. <laughs> so there you go. I totally, I completely, utterly forgot that he ever was a deathmatch wrestler. And as soon as you said that, I was just like, oh right. Yeah, he was because he trained in BJW and then left over money, I think, um, and got a job with AJ, AJPW. And then left AJPW for New Japan with Tai Chi at the same time. Actually, it was about four of them that left at about the same time. So, yeah. Um, Hikijata and Henrai aren't as big a names, obviously, because uh, Hikijata is still a freelancer. He's still wrestling 24-year pro. Um, he currently wrestles for All Japan still. He's still there. He went, back, he went to wrestle one with um, Muta and then came back, did a bit of time in Nova as well. A journeyman wrestler, um, and where is Hirai? Hiji, that was Hijikata, wasn't it? Hirai uh, is 52 years old, he's even older. Uh, oh, had a brilliant name. One of his former names is Super Hate. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant character! That. Super Hate, um, and he's still wrestling for all Japan. He okay, came... he also had an, an alter ego crusher, Bam Bam Hirai. He's got kind of a bit of a facial kind of uh, resemblance to your Bam Bam, hasn't he, really? A little bit, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, but yeah, and he's, he's again, he's, he's been a journeyman. He's still wrestling for All Japan. Um, yeah, it's, they've all had long careers. Um, it's intriguing, though. But um, we don't cover All Japan as much now because it's just not as big a company as it used to be. Um, but we should do, perhaps, do some modern stuff. Because they were streaming mm. stuff as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the best match in the world. Kind of gives Abdullah a job, and the fans like which is from at the end. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a worthy cause. There's the there's wrestlers who have less to offer who've been given bigger matches on uh, yeah on bigger cards. Doesn't our stay is welcome. They've used him as best as they possibly can. He's got some younger guys over. What more could you do with him, really? You know, he's not going to have a 20-minute classic with Genajira 10, really, is he? So, but he's willing to bump for the younger guys, and that's good. Yeah, that's it. A lot of people weren't. And he learned from the older guys that that's what you do. You know, he told yeah. the story. And I was, I've told this story before, but it was always one that really impressed me. And he was wrestling in Toronto, obviously, in the late 60s, early 70s, when he had the reputation as Abdullah, the big, bad Abdullah. Um, or... It, um, Lou Thez was the main event, was the NWA heavyweight champion, and he was going to Toronto. And all the local guys were going, Lou's going to kill you because he hates he hates gimmick guys. He doesn't like gimmick guys. He's, he's going to you're just the wrong person to wrestle Lou. But you're the big draw, so we're going to have to do something with you. But don't be surprised if he hurts you. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the night of the fight, he was in a dressing room by himself, and Lou was on the opposite side of the building. He climbed out of his window, walked around to Abdullah's window, climbed in, and said, anything you want to do, champ's fine by me. Wow. <laughs> and that was that. And him and Lou went and had a great match, and he was made for life because Lou first thought he was all right. You know, and that's how you do wrestling. You know, Lou is the, the gentleman grappler who you know, mm. kind of set the tone for everybody. Um, right. We should move on to the next one, shouldn't we, really? We've talked a lot I about think, it. I think so. <laughs> Next, we have George Hines, Hideki Hosaki, and Johnny Smith, uh, cousin of the Dynamite Kid and David Boy Smith. Mm. Um, Hideki Hosaka 
who sadly is no longer with us. He passed away last year. He was a journeyman wrestler from FMW and wrestled for all of the big King's Road promotions. Uh, George Hines is a guy who wrestled in for all Japan in this period, and I never really knew about him before. He's watching these videos and don't really know an awful lot about him now. <laughs> um, mm. They are going up against Mike Rotunda, who's most famously Bray Wyatt's dad. Um, yep. Shigi Okamura, who currently wrestles for CMLL, where he is managed by Mima Shimoda, and Steve Dr. Death Williams. So there's an obvious kind of like star quality about this match. Before this match starts, though, Yoshiaka Kawada comes out and does a sit-down promo about his leg injury, which I found interesting, because that seems a very un-all Japan thing to do, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was a quite a serious leg injury that had caused himself at the time, and he did have to have some time off. But to have a sit-down interview was very, very serious. Mm. Um, but it was nice. It was a nice touch. I thought it really kind of got you into the the feel of that particular where the company was. It was trying to change things and make things trying to appeal to a crowd differently. I suppose. It also seems like the fans were, you know, like they respected it. Yeah, that's it. And he's quite, he's, he's the guy that carried the company with the other three for so long as well. He's really important to them. Um, but what do you think of this particular six-man tag? So there was a lot going on, and I had a hard time kind of following all of it, honestly. Um, I also feel like, uh, to be fair, I don't know that that interview segment was enough of a cool-down for me to, like, divest myself emotionally from the reactions that I had to the previous match on the card. Right, okay. Um, so I maybe didn't enjoy it as much as I would have. Um, this felt more to me like a WCW mid-carder kind of deal. <laughs> like, it kind of felt like they were like, okay, we're going to get all these guys in a match so that everybody gets the payday and everybody gets on the card and everybody gets experience. But I don't know that I felt like it was trying to make any big stars. No, I mean, I suppose Dr. Death is the biggest star in this match and clearly just stood there. He looks like the biggest star in this match. Yes. Um, and he was kind of still within the main event scene of all Japan, but he wasn't like gunning for the triple crown every week. Like he used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Funnily enough, of course, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and uh, Mike Rotunda were in the Varsity Club in WCW. Or NWN, we're in the which, uh, sorry? The Varsity Club, which was Kevin Sullivan's faction in 1988 and 89, which was oh, Mike Rotunda, Steve Williams, and uh, Rick Steiner, who were all, of course, famously graduates of college, and they were... You know, the Varsity Club, it was this network of college boys that were going to run professional wrestling. And they were all massively over as well. But, of course, Flair was there, so you can't, you can't have anybody too massively over. Right. <laughs> or things right. tend to go wrong. Um, and then it kind of fell apart, <laughs> as these mm. things do. But um, Rotondo was a, uh, a regular. Basically, he wasn't working for WWE. He was working for WCW from about 1983 onwards. He started off with Jim Crockett promotions the first time I first match I ever saw, the earliest match I ever saw him in was Jim Crockett Promotions uh, tagging with Rufus R. Freight Train Jones, if I remember correctly, on a card in South Carolina. And then next thing I heard of him was obviously the US Express with Barry Windham. They became great close friends, and hence the reason why, you know, uh, Barry Windham's children and, and uh, 
Rifflund's mm-hmm. children that got into the business together and are close friends because they're cousins. Um, and then he was the next time I see him, he was back in WCW again as Captain Mike Rotunda, then Michael Wall Street. Then he went to the IRS and then he went back to WCW to be Mike Rotunda in the NWO. Uh, hmm. Probably the least celebrated NWO member because why did they need him? Yeah. <laughs> um, and But in between times, he would go off to all Japan and just have regular wrestling matches as Mike Rotunda. He, um, I don't know. I, I see a lot of people in cage match saying that he's underrated. And I mean, I can like, clearly he's very serviceable in this match, but also kind of lacks the, the big star power of some of the other guys. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I mean, obviously IRS was a great mid card idea and one of instant man's, you know, working man characters that actually did get over the crowd because mm-hmm. everybody hates tax men. That's an easy one to do, isn't it? Really? Yep. <laughs> Um, but even then, Erwin R. Scheister, there was a certain anti-Semitic link towards that, but they didn't stress on it too much. But, you know, mm. again, it, it's playing on stereotypes that are not particularly nice. But it did seem like if he had a character or something to go with, he was great. If he was just Captain Mike Rotunda, that didn't seem to do any good for anybody. He was just kind of listless. He wore a boating cap and was a babyface and about as interesting as wallpaper. Um, so if he had something to go with, he could work. When he was Michael Wall Street, he knew what he was doing. He's a born heel. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make money unless you've got the baby faces to go with it and, or, or anyone who can kind of play into that character. For as a baby face, he was dourly boring, but exceptional professional wrestler. So like his best work was in tag teams, like his, the US Express with Barry Windham and, of course, um, Money Incorporated with Ted DiBiase. In fact, you think about it, Ted DiBiase was very similar to Mike Rotunda in the sense of he was a working heel. Mm. <laughs> you know, he wasn't. He, Dynamite Kid said in his book, Ted DiBiase was a great wrestler, but he had no will to go smack somebody in the mouth for no reason, which is what you need to be to be a good heel. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. really true. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing Rotunda had as well. He was just, he was a heel, but as soon as he got in the wrestling ring, he wrestled the same way as he did when he was a babyface. Hmm. You know, and Johnny Smith, um, exceptional professional wrestler, but just didn't have the charisma that David Boy Smith and Diane McKid had. And was always a guy who was in demand to have great wrestling matches, but that didn't. He's got that wrestling. movement quality, though, for sure. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I was talking with Alex Jeepshaw about him, and he was like, I love him. I think he's great, but he never kind of like, never took the opportunities that were given to him and always played it safe. And that was his biggest issue. He should have been a bit more. He should have been more than he what he was. Yeah. You know, he did great in Canada. He did great in Japan. Um, but could have been so much more. Um, but tended to blow things at the wrong moment, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Okimura still shame. going. Yeah, Okimura's still going. As I said, he's a wrestler for CMLL. He wrestles. Um, um, he wrestles for them. Mima Shimoda, when she's in Mexico, manages him. She spends most of her time working for New Japan these days, but she still goes over and manages him when she has time. And She's amazing. She is. And, you know, if, if, if there's any more essence of pure evil than Mima Shimoda, <laughs> I want to know who she is. But there you go. Um, and, of course, the late, great Dr. Destiny Williams being Dr. Destiny Williams. It's Oklahoma stampedes and beards and the whole nine yards. <laughs> <laughs> it's... 
a lot, I, of, I, lot of sideburns in this match. There is. I, I, I love Steve Williams. I've watched Steve Williams do anything for, you know, he was such a presence. It's not that so much he was a great wrestler because he's a fairly basic power wrestler. Right. Just the way he does things, you know, it's just the, the just, you just have, I, I watch just his sheer presence, like the ECW when he had the reformation with uh, the Miracle Violence connection with Terry Gordy. And um, they did a promo where they'd lost the Eliminators and they had the Eliminators for a World Tag Team title match. And Gordy just says, I can't live with myself until we put those Eliminators down. Tell them, Doc. And Doc just stares into the camera. Doesn't say a word, just stares into your soul. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> the Abyss <laughs> case amazing. is Yeah, that's like... I don't, there was a the, when they made their debut at Crooked Hall as well. It's actually my WhatsApp picture because I froze it. I love that picture so much so on WhatsApp. I have a picture of Steve, Steve Williams staring at you. It's just terrifying. Oh my god! People. Um, but the what what happened was the camera was down the tunnel at Crooked Hall and they were they were just bouncing around as those two did. And then Steve sees the live camera and just stares down the lens. <laughs> it's like. That's how you get over. You don't have to talk because you're in a country where you don't need to speak. You just do you. And that was it. And, that, yeah. you know, that's Williams was great at getting the most out of the minimum, which is what all great wrestlers should do. And yep. you know, this, this match is a full entertaining brawl, though. I yeah. Think. It's not, it's not, it's not as into home about, but I think it's probably one of the more solid matches on the card. But it's very, like you said, it's very work day. I mean, I think it's fine. It's just, it's not my personal taste. No, it's kind of my personal taste. Mm. That's the kind of thing I would enjoy just from a pure wrestling match point of view. But uh, again, it's like, it could be, it's one of those things like the whole of the sum of its parts. It's really odd because you've got Johnny Smith and, and Rotundra, great technical wrestlers. You've got, you've got, um, uh, Hosaka, uh, who's a great brawler. You've got Okamura, who's pretty good technically. So it's kind of just a back and forth mishmash of power moves and brawling <laughs> with a bit of technical wrestling in the middle. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to kind of categorize it because it's a bit all over the place. But it's solid. There's nothing wrong with it. It feels more like a WWF match from that time than a lot, yeah. of, other, a lot of the other matches on this card. Yeah, it's like more westernized wrestling, more homogenous wrestling, I suppose. Uh, then we move on to 200% Machine and Genetira Tenru, and they defeated Arashi and Nobukatu Arai in 13 minutes and 40 seconds. And, well, <laughs> obviously Genetira Tenru is freaking Genetira Tenru, who was, you know, legend that had betrayed Giant Baba and Autocon Pro Wrestling to go from SWS with WWE and Vince McMahon and then began war and, and then they were in a hole so they asked him back. Um, and he basically folded war because he was spending so much time with All Japan and a lot of the war guys are part of the All Japan roster so they kind of buried the hatchet because they needed wrestlers basically. Mm. Um, and here he's tagging with 200% Machine who actually... <laughs> what a great is, name. Is... Um, Yoji Angio of the UWF, <laughs> who was chief up for UWFI up until its demise after the big feud with New Japan Wrestling, which we've talked about lots in this show. 
Um, Angio may be the most annoying wrestler I've ever come across. <laughs> and 200% Machine is a play on the uh, Super Strong Machine character in right. the 1980s and stuff. Um, of which Giant Baba was. The Super Strong Machines in the United States weren't Super Strong Machine. Super Strong Machine in Japan was a different guy. Super Strong Machines in the United States were actually Bill Eadie and Andre the Giant. Really? Bill Eadie from Demolition. Yeah, and Andre the I Giant. did not know that at all. Yeah, yeah they, they borrowed the idea and they got, obviously, because Super Strong Machine worked for New Japan at the time, which had an affiliation with WWF. So oh. they, they got permission to use it and they put giant Andre the Giant under a mask, like, because you're not going to know what Andre the Giant is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. not the most recognizable frame in no. professional wrestling. No, absolutely not. Of course, these seven-foot guys are kicking around all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Yoji Anjo is still brilliantly the person that um, challenged Hicks and Gracie at his uh, gym uh, in uh, in Los Angeles to a Wait, fight. Wait, what? Do you not heard this story? No. All right, so UWFI started, yeah? And um, they build themselves as a legitimate wrestling promotion. Everything was shoot. Everything was straight up. They were the toughest fighters in the world. Okay. Okay. Um, Nobuyuki Takada had an open challenge to any other wrestling champion, either WCW, WWF, or New Japan, or the Triple Crown champion, to come and challenge him for his uh, UWFI World Championship, which was approved by Lou Fez. It was the original NWA World Heavyweight Championship belt. Um, and they build themselves as legit. Now, from what I have gathered and from listening to other people, uh, actually Little Guido, who used to wrestle for ECW and WWE, he said, <laughs> the first 10 minutes, yes, they were legit. They were hitting each other as hard as they possibly could, but the finish right. was always predetermined. Okay? Mm. So they were working in this ultra-stiff, super-strong style in a shoot-style wrestling matches. Um, and Angio decided that the best thing he could do was go and open challenge to anyone. So he went to Hicks and Racy's, Gracie's gym in Los Angeles um, uh, with some members of the UWI-Fi front office and a video camera and challenged Hicks and Gracie to a fight in his gym. There Did it last 30 seconds? Uh, a little longer than that, but Angel was rushed to hospital with what was diagnosed as a crushed face. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, i'm surprised he didn't have anything when you said what was diagnosed as i was expecting either a severe concussion or something dislocated <laughs> no i think the doctor just went crushed face uh, <laughs> so yeah so we didn't do that again um and no one else has challenged the gracie brothers out of seriously out of professional wrestling except people like dan severin and ken shamrock who obviously knew what they were doing and yeah. Joe, not so much not to say he wasn't a tough guy, clearly he was, but his actual birthright as a professional wrestler was to be a wrestling heel because he was really good at that. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly a really good antagonist. Yes, and his and his uh, therefore his like where he started actually making money was actually later on as a as a wrestling heel in not only in AGPW but in other promotions as well. He, he wrestled for War as, as well with Genichiro working Genichiro Tenyu when. The feud with the New Japan ended. They had a they had a feud with him and a couple of the UWFI guys had a feud with uh, Team No Respect, Jeto and Jeto and Fujiaki over the War Six Man Tag Team titles. Um, and yeah, so and then we got Arashi Arashai, who's sixty years old now, 
So he was 40 then. He was trained by a giant Baba. He's an All Japan regular. He's 40 in this match? Yeah. Or wow. 42 in this match. Um, brilliant name for him. One of his other roles. He goes, Love Machine Storm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nobutaki Arai, who was a freelancer, who was trained by, not a bad trainer is this, Junichiro Tenuo, Gran Apache, El Texano, Miguel Perez, and Silver King. Wow. That's, that's, that's a, a bit of a lucha Japanese wrestling crossover there. Yeah. Interesting resume. Yeah, that's intriguing. So, yeah, and it was kind of a bit of a squash to get Tenryu into 200% machine over, really, to be honest with you. But it was all right. There was nothing wrong with it. What did you think of it? Um, again, I was mostly interested in the fact that the audience reacted to everything pretty seriously. Like, there's one guy in the front row who you can see occasionally who's, like, laughing at stuff. Yeah. But uh, every big bump they have a reaction to, even if it's just, like, a running knee or, yeah. you know, uh, I don't really think there's a lot of suplexes in this match, but, or, like, a lariat, you know? Um, the crowd is reacting to it without... Um, Without any pretense, they're very, you know, they're they're just genuinely enjoying it as a good sporting event. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, there's some meat to come as well, and nothing in this card has been particularly meaty. If that makes sense. Yeah. And we're about to get to the meat now, really. Yep. Um, so the meat of the card comes in the last two matches. Uh, the summer main event is an interpromotional grudge match between. Uh, I'm just moving it forwards because I'm watching it as we're as we're talking about it. Between Kendo Kashin and Satoshi Kojima, both formerly of New Japan Pro Wrestling and now of uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling, and Zero Ones Kazuki Ogasawa and the Destroyer Shinya Hashimoto. Um, Hashimoto in the late '90s held a press conference where he said he'd. Uh, opened the door to working with indie promotions in New Japan Pro Wrestling. That lasted about a week when New Japan Pro Wrestling went, we didn't say that, you can't do that, you're fired. Jeez. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, a lot of politics. Yeah, it's a lot of politics in this particular matchup. Um, anyway, he and... Um, I can't remember who set up with now. Another wrestler whose name escapes me. Uh, set up Zero One, which was kind of like the first strong style promotion outside of New Japan Pro Wrestling and basically run on a similar principle to nowhere of strong style can't be the only way we have to mix things up. And it's still a successful promotion and still is going now, uh, even though Hashimoto has not been with us for a good 15 years. Kojima and Kendo Kashin had both come over from New Japan Pro Wrestling and joined All Japan Pro Wrestling with, with uh, Kiyeji Muto. Kashin's uh, first match was winning the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship at the Tokyo Dome from Jushin Liger. It doesn't get much more fanfare-ish than that, but he decided that his future layouts were outside of New Japan, and Kojima went with his mentor, uh, Muta, and kind of has been with Muta one way or another for quite some time ever since. And funnily enough, Kojima this week made his debut in Noah's N1 tournament. Um, He's on loan from New Japan Pro Wrestling to Noah at the moment, and he's still a vital guy to have around. And of course, as we're talking about Keiji Muto, he's reunited with his former mentor as Muto goes on his retirement tour. Um, and this match is intriguing, because you've got um, Ogasawa, who is um, uh, obviously uh, a kickboxing practitioner, 
He's 62 now. Um, mm. Martial arts, the footwork magician, as he was nicknamed. <laughs> um, and he's kind of like, obviously, this is, reminds me very much of the FMW shows we've watched before with the, yeah. some mixed martial arts across the board there. Um, and, of course, you've got Hashimoto as well, who's, hey, you can't say enough about Shinya Hashimoto. He's just so good. And his presence is just so there. But this is kind of part of a bigger inter-promotional angle as Zero One uh, begin a feud with AJPW. Um, and then you've got Kojima, who's just as... Who's Satoshi Kojima? <laughs> yeah, he's Satoshi Kojima. He's just big and brawly and athletic and he does all the things he does now, but except he's 20 years younger, so he does it harder and he does it faster and he does it more. <laughs> he was, you know, and it's interesting, I'm so used to seeing him in the phase of his career that he's in now. Um, man, that guy was fast. Oh, yeah. He could move. He really could. Like he has, he has that natural effortlessness, even when he's um, doing something that is, you know, between like two big, super crisp moves, and he looks like he needs maybe a second to catch his breath. Like, mm. wow, he uh, he moves like a like a real fighter. Yeah, it's, it's it's just he's got a grace about him, you know. Mm. It's just that's that's there. I'm just watching Kojima going up against Hashimoto. I love Shinya Hashimoto. Just his his presence as a wrestler is just second to none, really. He's kind of got that Undertaker thing of just stood there and you see everything about him. The, the that thing was the first time I saw Shinya Hashimoto wrestle, we watched used to be a show called Wrestle Warriors in the early 90s on Eurosport, and it was New Japan. Basically repackaged with Oliver Humperdinck and Gordon Soley on commentary. How cool is that? <laughs> anyway, yeah. he's, he's tagging with uh, Chono against somebody else. And my dad's exact words were, what's that fat little barrel going to do when he saw Hashimoto? Because he just stood on the apron. He didn't look like a particularly well-qualified physique for professional wrestling at the time compared to everybody else. And I think it was Scott Norton. And, he, and Chono tags in Hashimoto. He's been sat on the apron for 10 minutes. Hashimoto breathes one big deep breath and kicks the hardest kick I've ever seen anyone kick into Scott Norton's <laughs> chest. And we were like, that's what he's gonna do. <laughs> and from that, you know what I just on, realized? Yeah, he has that. He has that Kevin Owens thing, where yeah. he so like something that I think Kevin Owens does really well that makes him a natural, not just a wrestler but a TV star, right? Is that whether the camera is zoomed in super close to his face or not, he is giving you an emotional reaction to every single thing that happens. Yes. He's doing it with his body. He's doing it with his face. Yeah. And Hashimoto 100% has that. Like, when he's, uh, whether he's in the ring or not, he is reacting to everything that's happening and helping tell the story and not in a way that feels... He's not, he doesn't feel like he's acting. Yeah. Like what, he's so switched on that yeah. he is just in the zone, in the moment, experiencing everything. I, I think you could say it, a similar type of wrestler in a slightly different way is Dump Matsumoto. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She is, Dump Matsumoto is Dump Matsumoto. She is on all the time when you see her yep. in a wrestling ring. There is there is no switchback. There is no no apologies. She 
she looks like she wants to murder you because she wants to murder you. She that, is a method actress, if I've ever seen one. Yeah, exactly. And Hashimoto isn't of that ilk. He's not quite so psychopathic. <laughs> but yeah. he's, you know, he's got that just, just relentlessness about him in the way that he reacts to wrestling matches and, and performs wrestling matches. Um, and you just don't see it very often in wrestlers. Mm. Just because it's so hard to do, you know, to be on all the time like that. It's, well, it's also, it's just like a, it's a level of, you know what it is? You know why you don't see it too often in wrestlers? Because most of the most successful professional wrestlers, wrestlers especially now, have to be super, super, super serious athletes. And yeah. most super serious athletes are not encouraged to cultivate that kind of emotional intuition mm. in any other aspect of life. Yeah. And I mean, like, how many, how many times do we talk about, like, you know, especially when we're talking about, like, some of the Ring of Honor guys now who are, like, rolling around in AEW um, or doing whatever in NXT that nobody's paying attention to? Um, how many times do we talk about, like, oh, yeah, that guy can work, but there's nothing interesting about him? Yeah. I you know? Yeah. Like, they're not encouraged to cultivate that level of emotional intelligence in a way and that's i mean i don't know anything about hashimoto's personal life i don't know if he has emotional intelligence in a way where he can like maturely handle an argument with another person but like i mean clearly he is just really really good at bringing that level of you know how uh, I, don't, I mean it's just natural it's not a i i don't think it doesn't look like something he would have studied i don't know that's just my no, I think My you're instinct. right. He's, he's born natural in, in his generation of wrestlers. It, like He was in the dojo with Jushin Liger, Kiyeji Muto, and Masachono. Mm. Arguably the four biggest names in New Japan Pro Wrestling's history. And they were all that good. Um, yeah. it, it's There is, as we've talked about before, there is a level of competition, even when you're friends and dojo brothers. Sure. There's obviously got to be a level of competition because you want the top spot. So do they. So you've got to be, right. here's, here's the two other biggest wrestlers this company's ever produced. Oh, by the way, you have to top them and they're going to try and top you every time. You know, yeah, 14, like, 14 nights in a row, two weeks off and go again. And that's your life. You know, that's, mm. and it's that we talked about it a lot with the AJW class of 86 and 87. Yep. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get to be that good? Well, you have the best trainers available to you. You are pushed to the moon and you have an entirely risky career based around the fact that if you do not perform better than this other five wrestlers, you arguably could be the five greatest wrestlers of all time on a weekly basis. You will drop down the card and not earn as much money. Yep. And you don't want that to happen because you are the best wrestler in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's how you get good. You know, this, this is the, I remember reading a book or reading something about um, the NHL, the original NHL, only had six teams around Quebec and uh, Toronto. So, but the talent, but you were only allowed six players. There were no substitutions back then. So you were only allowed eight players for injuries. So there was only six teams, eight players on a team. So there was literally like, you know, 46 places. So it was the best professional sport ever to reach at the highest level because you could only there was only forty eight spots. <laughs> um, so out of all the talent in North America, 
it was all distilled to these 48 spots. Wow. And so therefore, you know, ever since then, as the NHL has obviously expanded, it reduces the talent level because there's more players, right. there's more spots. So theoretically, there is, it's got to be worse. Now, right. you know, obviously, athletes now don't need um, a couple of shots of whiskey and three fags in the morning to get themselves going compared to what they were back then. <laughs> but, you know, the physical fitness of stuff uh, is much better now. Mm. But the, like that talent thing, there is only a certain amount of talent to go around, you know. Sure. It's like in soccer in, in the UK and football, the the pyramid of how soccer works, it used to be you'd get occasional odd results where smaller teams would beat bigger teams. But mm. nowadays, all the information of how to make your players fitter is available to every team, all 92 in the league yep. and all of the hundreds of non-league teams. Yep. So they all go for the same amount of low physical fitness for 90 minutes so it's right. just talent that gets you there now <laughs> it is literally yeah. just talent because the person who's playing in the semi-professional team in games for trinity down the road from where i live is just as fit as the people who are playing for chelsea and manchester united and arsenal and whoever it's like watching an olympic gymnastics final mm. you know an event final it's like yeah. we've narrowed the entire world down to these six or seven people <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it and it is just like you know it's it, how do you that's the reason why Hashimoto was so good and why these people are so good he you and know, Kojima I, really get into it so much that you almost forget it's a tag match yeah that's it the other two they're along for the ride Kishin's great I love the guy he's still wrestling in Noah now and in DDT as a bit of a comedy heel and he's, he's awesome. And then you forget the fact he's like a proper serious hardcore shooter. But they're along for the ride in this match. They're not required. <laughs> I bless them as much as they're trying and they're doing a very good job. Sure. This is, that match is not about them. This is about something else. Hell, Hashimoto threw a drop kick. And he never threw a drop kick. It was far too high up for him. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's how deep in we are. And he's just tagged, like, I'm just watching him now, and he's just tagged Ogasawa by hitting his hand harder than he was hitting Kojima. <laughs> Get in there. But, yeah. yeah. But it's... Yeah, he's really good. He's really fast. Yeah. And it's, if you it's, think Kojima's fast, that guy's actually faster somehow. Yeah. It's insane. But it's it, it's everything an interpromotional match is supposed to be. They're supposed to feel it. They're supposed to be representing their companies, even though... Kojima hasn't been in the company that long. He still has to, pr it's a good way of proving yourself to the old Japan faithful that you believe in this company, especially after so many people have left. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Kishin is just strangling Ogasawa with his black belt now. <laughs> Shall we move on to the main event? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the main event featured the Gladiator. For those of you who don't know who the Gladiator is, that was the former ECW World Heavyweight Champion, Mike Awesome. And he was going up against not Kyoji Muto, the Great Muta, as the Great Muta made his first title triple crown run in all Japan pro wrestling. After being champion as Kyoji Muto, there was always a draw about the Great Muta when it comes to Japanese fans. And Mike Awesome was still an exceptional professional wrestler, having been mucked about by WCW, then having been mucked about by the WWE, 
and obviously sadly no longer with us after a suicide basically because people didn't take him seriously as the great pro wrestler he was which is horrible but there we are and um i always loved watching michael awesome wrestling me and you've watched loads of his matches in fmw so we know how great he could be yeah and this is a match that's just this showcases how great he can be he's a great opponent for muta because he can just do everything and muta is there is such a sense of presence about Muta as a character. It's like you just forget how great he was and how much otherworldly he was uh, in this particular area as well. What did you think of this one, Justin? I enjoyed this. Um, yeah. I even even just watching the two of them like chase each other a little bit before they actually like really got into it at the start of it was really interesting. And um, it surprised me how quickly they got on the ground. Uh, yeah. The submission stuff was fun. And, like, that's not... For some reason, that's not really what I think of when I think of Mike Awesome. Like, I, I'm used to seeing him being, like, a big guy who's tossing people around. Yeah. But uh, he can't just do that in this match. And that makes it more interesting. It's very dramatically tense. Like, the crowd is really excited about it. Um. And uh, I don't know that I, I know, like, I've definitely watched him before. I don't know that I have seen as much from this particular period of his career, but it's, I feel like I don't actually, I feel like I had a, an underestimated him before I saw this. Because mm. I don't know that I really knew that he could keep up with KG Muto on this level, but he totally yeah. does. And he keeps up with him, not just, like, in a physical way. He keeps up with him in, like, the dramatic aspects of this, too. Yeah. Like, they, they really let that tension build to the point where even when he's just doing that, I don't know what you call it, where um, you've got a guy on the ropes and you're pressing your foot into his chest to mm. pretend you're choking him. Yeah. Um, the crowd is freaking out about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he really gives you that slow build for when Mudo really gets going. And it's yeah. like, all right, man, now I'm going to run around and beat the shit out of you. Yeah. And it's it's fun. It's really fun. It's It's got just enough of that, like, smaller guy, bigger guy thing that mm. you sort of, um, th physically together, you can look at them and you go, well, obviously the gladiator is going to beat the shit out of Great Muto, right? But, yeah. uh, but then you actually see them move and you're like, oh, no, those guys are evenly matched. Yeah, because Muto is... Muta is the evil um, alter ego of Keiji Muto. Yeah. And if, if you go back to that, we did a playlist for the show that me and Dara did, which shows you how evil he truly is. <laughs> and he's done some evil things down the years. But, um, you know, there's, there's that met the metadata that we talked about. There's a metadata about Muto. He only comes out for special occasions when he's really needed. And, mm. and that's this kind of like, there's an awe about that. There's a presence about that. And he is unpredictable and he is scary. And, you know, going up against Orson, who's such an unorthodox opponent because the legend of Mike Orson, he's a 300-pound guy that can move like a luchador. And, yeah. You know, and in this match, he can also do mat submissions and he can brawl. He can, he can do so many different things that he never really got a chance to show in the States except for that run in ECW where he was taken seriously as a main event level professional mm. wrestler but and it also makes me sad because it's like 
if WCW are taking him seriously and running against Goldberg, how much money would he make? Just how much? Hand yeah. this money. You know, or if WWE are actually taking him seriously and ran him against Triple H, again, hand over fist money. It's funny because you just named two guys who I think of as, I mean, obviously, like, Triple H is a much better wrestler than Goldberg. But, yeah. um, but you just named two guys who I think are not good at wrestling storytelling mm. on their own, you know? No. And if the guy that they're wrestling isn't able to bring that, like, that charisma and those emotional reactions we were talking about before, um, what they're doing is just really boring and flat on television, yeah. at least. Maybe it's different if you're in the arena. Um, mm. But it's clear looking at this, like watching Mike Awesome struggle with blood all over his face to get back in the ring and, um, you know, waving the ref off and like stumbling like he can't yeah. fully stand up, but he's too determined to to stop, even though he's hurt. Um, he has that. He could he could absolutely make you care in that way mm. and tell the story of what he was doing, even if the person he was wrestling was really flat and unable to give those kinds of emotions to you. And I'm not sure if that's the reason you picked those two guys as examples. It sounds to me like you picked those two guys as examples because, you know, they were like super over and popular with fans. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, I think both of those matchups would have worked really well. I also think he would have been the kind of guy who like, um, who like somebody like Kevin Owens could turn what is booked as like a mid card, nothing storyline into appointment television yeah that's the thing it's it's like the awesome of this particular period was kind of like a bit merc it was always mercenary but it's even more so he would go to nowhere he was monster of the week for numerous different promotions he would go to nowhere and run up to Quebec into Kabashi to challenge for the ghd heavyweight championship a couple of years later and that's what he did well you know he the he was he, he worked like a territory wrestler when there wasn't really enough territories for him to do that in. Mm. Um, and he, he should have been a special attraction. If he'd been born 20 years later, or if he'd been born now, he would have, like, he would have done incredibly well because he kind of set the ground for people like Lance Archer. You know? He had, he um, killed himself, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Did he yeah. have health problems near the end of his life? A few, but I think a lot of it. He, I think a lot of it was also down to the way his career had gone as well, which is, mm. it, it's really sad when you consider like he was a top guy, he earned good money, but it wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't really respected as well as he could have been because of things that were out of his control. That seventies guy gimmick, which killed him in WCW. Like, sure. I shouldn't use that phrase. I do apologize, but that's the end of his like productive career as far as North America was concerned mm. um, you know it was and I don't know why I don't know why WCW chose to do that it's like why would you go out of your way to create a gimmick for somebody that just isn't going to work or create money um, well why did Vince McMahon do it all the time you know why did Vince Russo do it all the time like they're vindictive assholes who like to feel like they're more powerful than people who are more talented than they are. Yeah, I think that's that's really it. Yeah, pretty much. And you know, I'm I'm like I put this on in the background while we're talking about it. I just watched the spot where Mike Awesome takes that horrible bump onto the concrete outside the ring. Um, <laughs> I'm just watching the, that now. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> like 
you know, a thing I think about a lot when I think about, um, when I think about guys from the, uh, the 80s and like 90s era is how many wrestlers met gruesome ends because mm. they were willing to do what ever they had to to their bodies like they were willing to basically kill themselves on camera in order to be successful not just so they could earn enough money but because they felt that strongly about their art form they were willing to just completely burn themselves out Mm. and i sort of wonder if maybe that was the case for him it wasn't just that he you know wasn't more successful maybe i think it was also maybe just that like he used up everything he had he was willing to to kill himself in the ring for something that didn't love him back. Yeah. It's I mean, really sad. It is, you know, in the sense of he also had the hardest start possible. FMW was not a nice place to be when it came to preserving your bodily function. Oh, not at all. No, you know, and to be fair to FMW, a lot of those wrestlers have gone on to live highly productive and long lives. Yes. Been a couple of high profile ones that didn't. Um, and I look at other promotions, notably All Japan Pro Wrestling, who had a lot of stars die early because of the impact that they were taking. Misawa being mm. the obvious one, you know, um, because and a lot of it, I think, is, and I think a lot of it came down to, I don't mean to keep defending FMW because it's, as we know, it's been an exploitative place that wasn't necessarily the best working practical place to work. However, yes. getting caught up in barbed wire is not a risk to your life as taking massive bumps onto a concrete floor again and again and again. Yeah. You know, that's that's the that's the difference as much as you know, it wasn't a particularly pleasant place to work and it wasn't a particularly pleasant place to take bumps because you those bumps were landing in barbed wire, but you weren't taking like neck drop um uh neck drop backdrop drivers onto the ring five times every night. Right. So, you know, and that's what caused a lot of the damage for the people that that, that were there. Um, what did you think of the overall product of the card? Where do you think, as an outsider who's not really au fait with this stuff, right. where do you think the company stands in 2003, and do you think it's in a good place? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I know it's difficult to say from one card. You've not seen the TV product for weeks lining up to this show and stuff. But right. As a snapshot, where do you think the company is? Uh, very dedicated fan base but probably not as big as it needs to be to draw serious money. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think creatively... Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, I was going to say creatively, from what I understand, this is one of its hottest periods. Mm. Uh, but it, you can see that there's going to be cracks coming up that could cause them problems. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, like maybe 2006, 2007 era Ring of Honor, yeah. where, like, the fans are super passionate and super into it. But how many people were actually watching that product and talking about it? Maybe, yeah. maybe if you include the entirely online fan base that was, like, either, you know, doing the digital equivalent of tape trading, where they were, you know, buying stuff or downloading stuff illegally and buying DVDs, maybe 100,000 people were, like, super, super, super invested in it. I think the biggest thing that stands out for me is there are no young wrestlers coming up on this show at all, except for Tai Chi. Um, yeah. You know, everyone, I mean, Dragon wasn't, was regular for them, but he wasn't going to be a main event junior heavyweight, mm. as it turned out. 
Hayashi did stay around for a long time, but he was already a veteran at this point. Hayashi had, had 10 years in the business, I think. When did he start? He started in, he debuted in 92. This is 2003. He was already an 11-year pro at that point, so he's not a rookie. Right. The only true rookie at this particular point on this particular card is Tai Chi, yeah. who is around for another seven or eight years or so. Well, maybe not even that. How long did he stay there? Um he, he left Earl Japan in 2005 to go to New Japan in 2006 when, mm. Kojima, went, when Kojima went back to, all, to New Japan from Old Japan. Mm. So, uh, I mean, Kojima went a bit later than that. But so the one guy that they have faith in <laughs> doesn't even stay with them that long. And I yeah. think that's the big crack. This is big money, big drawing wrestling now. But my concern is, and I'm right, in the sense of historically speaking, you look three years down the line, they're doing good money, but they're not doing the money they should be doing. Yeah. You know, uh, considering the talent base they have, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that they've not got the the longevity in their roster yet, because Kawada's running the dojo and it's not going as well as they perhaps think it should, and so you get you get some rough times for all Japan pro wrestling ahead, unfortunately. Mm. So there you go. I don't want to end on a sad note because I think the card itself is actually pretty good. What do you think of the card itself? Um, I think the quality of the work is mm. like way, 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 way better than most comparable pay-per-views I've seen from other promotions in this time period. Yeah. I don't necessarily know if it's presented in a way that gives it maximum impact. I sort of feel like everybody's kind of taking for granted a little bit how good all mm. this stuff is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because um, there is that lack of the meta. That's the downside yeah. of having a fan base that's not constantly in their head about what you're doing and where it's going. Mm. is and you know i would argue the upside probably outweighs the downside in that case you know in that when you watch the wrestling you're just going to be able to enjoy it and have the nice experience of being present for it but i don't know i also feel like it just feels it, it does feel a little bleak it does it does feel a little underappreciated and maybe some of that is just how much other stuff that's doing big business um is happening elsewhere in the world at the time yeah and you're you're also going to run into a, a massive downturn in the japanese business in two years time that's mm. going to do horrible things to the japanese wrestling industry and not just old japan but new japan and NOAA as well um but NOAA is the only one making company making money at that particular point huh. uh, serious money because they're doing the tokyo dome and inviting new japan to come to their show <laughs> not the other way wow. around now yeah me and uh, john looked it's crazy at, uh, me and john looked at the voyage show at the tokyo dome where tanahashi who was iwgp world heavyweight championship at the time challenged for the global honor crown championship and wow. was booed out the building what yeah tanahashi, tanahashi? yeah he was an outsider he was a new japan guy he can't he can't but it was also the point it was Tanahashi's first reign when he, it was kind of like he wasn't quite ready for it. 
you see yeah. what I mean? And he wasn't, he was getting John cena if you will. Mm, okay, Ruthless Aggression yeah. era John Cena. Yeah, it happens a lot, actually, more than people think, because Ric Flair's first reign wasn't all peaches and cream, and even Flair admits that he wasn't ready to win the title at that particular time. The second title reign was when Flair became Flair. But his first I mean, was... and, you know, that's one of the debates that wrestling fans will have forever mm. more is... Do you give somebody a title when they're ready for it, or do you give it to them before they're ready for it, so that they get ready for it? I think you, I think there's arguments for both. There's, then you've got Diesel was a good example of he wasn't ready for it, and he didn't. Mm. But you also have like Tanahashi getting the title made him want it more, and he wanted to carry the company. Yeah, and he was relentless by going into places, you know. He would say, like, we got 350 tonight, we need 500 next time. Okay, we got 500 tonight, we need 750 next time. And he was relentless in ensuring that those gates went up to make sure the company made business, that everybody made money, because that's what a champion's supposed to do. I was so happy that I got to go to the New Japan show that they did in uh, in Lowell in Massachusetts a few years ago mm-hmm. um, and see Tanahashi at the end and getting seeing how genuinely excited he was talking to the crowd and yeah. uh and you know celebrating the fact that we were all because nobody goes to those shows unless they're like huge wrestling nerds right? <laughs> like, like the the audience treated them all like the rock stars they were yeah and he was so appreciative it was so beautiful he is a nice young man he is <laughs> he is and he has beautiful hair <laughs> oh, oh, we didn't even, oh my god Aside from my comment about sideburns, did we even talk about the hair on this um, card? We didn't we, even talk about the hair. No, we didn't talk about that. We do. We should do a, a run back of the best mullets because obviously Mike Awesome has the classic mullet of the. Era. Yeah, his is actually. You know what? A mullet is a good haircut for him, and I rarely say that about mullets. <laughs> He's got the ideal face for a mullet, I think. Um, he does. Kojima's kind of savage, short back and sides is not great. I do have to say that. I'm glad he grew it out. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's it's much better now. Yeah, it's not it's not as um, it's not particularly nice. Hashimoto's hair is always a joy to watch because he had the same hairstyle for quite some time, and this this was kind of a variation on that, which was um, trying to find a get my spot in the show so I can figure out where his hair looks like to describe it for you all. They're on in Radio One. <laughs> um, his hair at the, this particular time was kind of. Lots of sideburn. Always the yep. king of the sideburn. The sideburn with the flared trousers. The sideburn's a bit shorter, but it's kind of like there's a little party at the back going on. It's not. I mean, yeah, it's like kind of razor back. cut to go to go down though. It's not. Yeah. It's not cut to flare out at all. No. No frills for him. Very no serious. Very serious uh, young man. The, the Doctor Death's legendary mullet is in full flow though. <laughs> You have to say, like, Steve Williams, if there was a guy that, that, that <sighs> I hate to say it now, because he looks like the kind of guy who would have been in a, an insurgency on January the 6th, but oh, at the time, oh my God. bless him, I, I, I am sure the Dr. Death, it was an, an American patriot, would not stand for such things, let's say that right now, because you know, to be heel of the dead, but um, he does have, like, that classic Oklahoma mullet that, you know, Oh yeah, he's a good old boy. He definitely is, and it's, it's just, it just it just fits him. It's just the right thing for him. Like you, 
he had that hairstyle forever and he would chop it short to the nape of the neck but it still didn't look that much different really. <laughs> when he got older it's still like yeah because he's steve williams he has to look a certain mm. way there's a certain you know you can't some people like jericho is a good example of he changes things up to reinvent himself on a regular basis and short hair for one hair and one thing another steve williams you can't change that much or else he's not steve williams mm, it's true that's it and it's like mullet beard go <laughs> yep that's it tough um but yeah um heinz's shaved head how do you feel about that kind of neutral honestly i mean it was the era of shaved headed wrestlers like stone cold had kind of cornered the market on that <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it just doesn't uh didn't resonate with me too much no. one way or the other uh i'm looking at kawada's mullet as well because that that is again kawada is nothing without that mullet mm-hmm. and at this, this point it was at his tamest stage it had been for quite some time um because it's the early 2000s and it's only collar length at the back yeah um, he's not putting gel in the front anymore either no no so it's not as sharp as it once was he's softened both figuratively and actually <laughs> he's got a nice set of curtains in the fringe though yeah, there's some good fringe. There's good fringe. If he could grow that out, he would look like an indie guitar player from Croydon. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think Kaz, um, Kaz haircut is exactly the same now as it was then, but it just doesn't dye it anymore. It's just gone back to brown with some frosted tips. He got sick of, uh, of all the breakage, probably. I would think so. Blonde hair is not good and healthy for your hair, especially when it's short. And especially when you're doing it cheaply with, like, really, really, really strong bleach. Yeah. And, of course, we should just touch on Tai Chi's hair uh, for a moment. Um, as he had the standard rookie short back and sides. Yes, he did. Um, far and away from the emo cut he has these days. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, got, the, he's got the emotional side bang that he can flip. Yes, true. That's... That's where he's at at the moment. Um, he did a lot of emotional side flipping yesterday when uh, <laughs> I was. He was wrestling. Um, he was wrestling Jay White, and Ghetto went after Neo Abe, and oh, he did not like that. <laughs> it was oh, it's like it's a different side to you, sir, that I have not seen. Going to defend your manager—that's very good of you. And hmm. uh, he clobbered Ghetto, but lost the match, unfortunately. There you go. What can you do? Hmm. Uh, yes well thank you very much for joining us today as we talked to all japan pro wrestling where can we find you on the internet just uh my twitter is panels and pros which i also use on instagram and tiktok there you go uh you can find me at sheriff lonesight you can find the show at troopany show and you can find us on uh patreon the troopany show where you keep us free forever for everyone um we're still negotiating what is going to replace Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine. We'll let you know. It's, it's in the pipeline. Things are bubbling. Things will happen. It will be cool. I'll let you know. Obviously, you can find me and John's stuff from there. Thank you very much for joining us again today, Chelsea. It's been an absolute joy, as always. It was really fun. Okay. Uh, this week, it is 
Oh, G1 Climax Finals Week. And so I have got, so yesterday you will have had today at the G1 Climax, and you will have another one on Tuesday, that's tomorrow, and another one on Wednesday, and another one on Thursday, because for reasons best known to themselves, they've decided to put the biggest tournament file in Japanese wrestling on a Thursday. Dang. Budokan rents must be cheap on a Thursday. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> Cost us less money if we do it on a Thursday. Why would you do it on a Thursday? Nobody does anything on a Thursday. Um, so, yeah, so I'll be here for all of those as we uh, get to the finals of the G1 Climax, which is starting to get very interesting indeed. But we'll talk about that on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Have a lovely time next week. Myself and John Dinsdale will be looking at the career of Keiru Maeda, who has retired this week. Take care. We'll speak to you then. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.